Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, this is Emma, Senior Account Manager at the Webby Awards. A lot of people have been asking if there are more opportunities to enter your work into the 24th Annual Webby Awards. Well, there are. The Webby Awards final entry deadline is December 20th. Enter now at webbyawards.com to make sure your work is viewed by the best minds across the internet and have a chance to win a Webby next May. We have a ton of new ways to honor your work this year, including brand new categories for voice, podcasts, social, student work, and more. Head on over to webbyawards.com to learn more. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Nothing like designing for yourself. We couldn't do it alone. Keep sending us Chrome experiments. Everything you think is true. Hey there, and welcome back. Today, we sit down with early web pioneer and Glitch CEO, Anil Dash. Anil has been a strong voice championing the core values of the web since practically as long as it has existed. Along the way, he was an early executive of Movable Type, an advisor to the Obama's White House Office of Digital Strategy, and advisor to companies like Medium and Donors Choose. Today, Anil is the CEO of Glitch, a company that makes it easy to make apps, bots, art, and all sorts of digital experiences, all within the web browser, alongside a community of millions of other supportive creators. We talk a lot about how the sites and platforms of today could be more inclusive, more ethical, and more humane. And of course, about Glitch and the joy of watching people make things for the web. And if you know Anil, you know we also had to talk about Prince and his Webby five-word speech, Everything You Think Is True. As a real Prince nerd, he helps us fill in some of the gaps of what Prince meant with those famous five words. We start off talking about how critical choices made by his colleagues at Trello and Stack Overflow inspire his work at Glitch. You build a company where you treat people right. You make a product that treats customers right. You have a business model that people understand. And then, you know, people make some money and the web gets better and it can be fine. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and I feel like when I, you know, I got a front row seat to watch that because I had just joined Fall Creek at the time. You know, Trello was its own independent company by then, but we shared an office. Like it was a front row seat to like, they had formerly been our coworkers and they had the success and we watched them, you know, have a hit and get acknowledged for it and get rewarded for it. And all around, everybody's like, oh, you can't do that. That doesn't work. It doesn't exist. Like there's right. this weird denial, I, I guess, based on the stories that get attention, based yeah. on the, the narrative of a, you know, Harvard dropout, a Stanford grad in a hoodie who looks a certain way and acts a certain way and makes money a certain way as the model of what tech is. And it's like, it ain't that. I think you could sort of point to a lot of the decisions that some of these companies have made and say, hey, they encountered challenging circumstances and they mm -hmm. made the wrong choice, right? Yeah. Like, and there, There's an intentionality though. Yeah. You, you set up boundaries about where you are and are not willing to go. Right. Right. So absolutely there is, you know, 
no small amount of privilege. I mean, uh, one of the biggest underpinnings to what Joel and Michael had done in creating Fog Creek and then what I'd been able to do in coming in and, and you know, taking over Fog Creek and renaming it to Glitch, a lot of that was about me having been on social media for 20 years, the same with them, and being in the right place at the right time, a lot of luck and, and good fortune and us having, you know, stable families and parents that supported us and all that stuff. At the same time, there's a tremendous amount of intentionality about these choices. And I get to see it. I get to be in the room when they would discuss with the board, like, we will make money this way. We will not make money this way. We will not do these things at the expense of our users. We will not do these things at the expense of the web. Right. We have an obligation to what the internet is to not do X, Y, and Z. That stuff does sound old fashioned, but you know, I, I think there's a whole new generation that's ready to hear it that wants to learn about a, a history and an ethos that have kind of been erased. And it's wild because it's not a hundred years ago. Yeah, no. It's, it's not it's not like some secret like buried seven history. Years ago, right? right, exactly. Right, right. It's like it's like we were it's all there. Four years ago. Right, right, right. It's, it's like very, really very year. recent. Yeah. And 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 yet yet the the story has been so obliterated and the myth making of, you know, the movies like the social network or whatever is so total that the the idea that there were, well, one, you know, innovations happening outside of Silicon Valley, two that it might be people who are older, three, that it might be a team that's more diverse, four, that they might have a different business model that's not as extractive and exploitative, those things don't get told. And so it just, it was one of the things where when they basically said to me, we've got another thing to show you. And the two prior things had been these, you know, millions of users, nine-digit valuation, change the internet, be super thoughtful products. I was like, let me see what you got. And they showed me the prototype of what became Glitch. And it was basically... You could go in your web browser, type in a, a document, kind of like Google Docs style, where you're editing together. But what they were doing was editing code. And as you typed the HTML or whatever it was, you would instantly have a web app or a web page that was live. Mm. No, you know, no app store to publish to, no approval, no compiling, none, none of the right. technical stuff. It felt as immediate as back in the day when we would make a GeoCities page or when we would make a, a live journal page or whatever, these these, you know, the early platforms, even MySpace. And it felt joyous it felt like creation it felt like you know whatever you pick up a guitar or or you pick up a paintbrush but without like the limitations of like you can put this picture here and you can do this one thing here which is sort of what my space was like right, right exactly i think one of the challenges was and actually even in the modern era there's there are a lot of good tools that are the like website builder right here's a template and if you want to have you know honestly if you want to have a coffee shop and you want a web page with a white background and a uh, you know, some light colored wood and somebody's hands holding a cup of coffee, like do use those tools. They're right. great. You know, you know like right. and the, yeah. they're, they're, they work they're, and it doesn't need to be. Uh, exactly. And and they're sponsoring all your favorite podcasts because they're making a big business doing that. And I right. think that's great. But there was also a time when we liked to get our hands dirty with the making of the web. And it was fun. It was interesting for the same reason that like taking apart a, a clock radio when you're a kid, it's, you know, playing with Legos is fun. And, um, and that got too hard. And I, I was that person. I used to make websites. I used to make the whole thing, right? And then and then I would dab, dabble every couple of years. I would sort of, you know, poke around, see what's it like? What's the new tech? What's the stuff on the web? And it would be like 55 steps of like, well, you have to deploy to Amazon and you have to do this and this. So and complicated. Like, yeah. And I was like, I can figure it out, right. but it's not my job anymore. And also none of this is fun. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to build a guitar factory. I just want to play some music. Right. And so that was um, that sense of, rediscovering when, you know, for people who are old enough to remember, web browsers used to have a view source menu. And you could just see the HTML that made up a web page. Yeah. And nowadays that's sort of buried in some weird developer settings if it's there at all. It's not, a, not even on your phone. 
And so the idea that you could see what makes up the web page is sort of gone. And we brought that back. And and I just thought that is well, one, that is the thing that opened up every door and every opportunity for me. You know, I am the child of immigrants. I did not go to college. I, when I came to New York City, I didn't know anybody. I was broke. And the way I made my career and all of my friends and met my wife and made my life was by building the web. Right. You know, it yeah. opened every door for me. And there are literally billions of other people that could have that experience if we gave them an internet that they could create and that they could own instead of just one that is received and delivered to them through a couple apps on their phone. What's the tech that makes it so that you can actually build stuff inside of a web browser? So there's a couple, there's a couple parts. Um, you know, the first of the web browsers got better. So you could type just for the same reason that Google docs is a pretty good editing experience. The, right. the, the editor and glitches is, is pretty good for typing code and it does nice things. So that, that, you know, it's a lot of good open source tech that's there under the hood. There's um containers, right? So containerization was this technology. Docker is the most popular sort of container technology. And what it's doing is it's making a, a virtual computer, a virtual machine, and it's taking the entire web server and wrapping it up in a way where we can we can manage all these virtual computers with software itself. You know, you go to Glitch's homepage, there'll be an app. Maybe it's like a calculator, something real simple. You're like, that's cool. And you can just use it just like you would in an app store. And then you're like, you know, that's nice, but I want the buttons to be blue instead of green. Uh, that'd be nicer. We have a, a, a remix button. And what's happening when you remix that app is we are making a copy of the entire container running that app, the entire machine. So all the configuration, all the software, all the all the code that's been written, and you get a copy of it on your own. And it's it sets that up. It configures a new operating system. It sets up the web server. It copies all over all the code. And that happens in about half a second. Wow. You know, and that was it's just know, like massive virtualization. Exactly. Of like every single right, thing, right? Right. When I realized that's what was do- happening under the hood in that prototype, that was the, you know, holy crap moment. That was like, oh my God, this is, we, we have gotten to a new capability. You know, we've gotten to something that, that gets us back to why we're able to make something much, much easier. The thing was a lot of the heavy lifting kind of showed in the early prototypes. It was like, oh, you could see it was doing some chugging behind the scenes. And so we spent a lot of time speeding that up and simplifying it. And then we put a, you know, just a friendly interface on it. We have these like bright colors and a really welcoming kind of space. We got the name Glitch, which had formerly been the game that became Slack. And Stuart's. Uh, yeah, 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 Stuart Butterfield's thing. And so so we, we were able to get, you know, that name. And, and Glitch was really important as a name to me because it was like, indicated you could make mistakes here and things mm. could be imperfect and, and that we were all going to make stuff and try it out. And, and then that idea of remixing so that we just sort of said, if you, if you see something you like here, take it and copy it and tweak it. And that idea of starting from something that works instead of starting from scratch, that was what we used to do with the view source button back in the days, the menu back in the days, is we would look at a page on GeoCities or a page on AngelFire or any of those old web services and be like, that's cool. How did they do it? Right. And you would look at it and you would copy it and you would do it. And we brought that back, but all the way to the server, all the way to the code, all the way mm-hmm. to the database, all the all the pieces that you were sort of doing. So as technical as you want to go, you can go. I mean, if you just want to be like, I want to tweak a web page, you can do that. Sure. But if you want to build, you know, we have people building tools for their work. They're building, you know, bots to manage stuff in Slack, or they're building we got kids that are in Discord chatting with each other and they're making entire alternate reality games in text that they build on Glitch and they play on Discord. They, they are, you know, we have people building virtual reality experiences that they're projecting at planetariums so they can explore, 
you know, these virtual worlds they built on Glitch. And, wow. And, and, you know, it's, it's just unbelievable, the stuff we see. And then, and then really pragmatic stuff. So we have um, transit advocates that are, that are sharing statistics about pedestrian injuries and fatalities from unsafe roads and getting people to change their highway policies and their transit policies. And, and that was an example where it started in rural Maryland outside of D.C., you know, somebody made a, basically a, a pedestrian injury and fatality counter, and they use stats locally to sort of say, this is people who are being hurt by us not having these intersections to be safe. And then people took it and remixed it in other cities all over the country. Huh. And so there are dozens and dozens of these advocates that are using it. We're seeing the same thing with people talking about local uh, legislation. So we had a, an activist who she had created a, um, a bot that told you whenever, you know, your local state legislator had proposed any, any laws so you could sort of see what they were working on. And then people took that and remixed that for every state in the country. And you, you just see that sense of like, I can take this raw materials, these tools. And most of the people doing that work are not developers, right. they're not coders, they're not programmers. They're just people that know the web as a tool that can help them be what they want to be or create the thing they want to create. So it's really multi-purpose, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's like, um, oh yeah, very it's, much so. it's not, it's not aimed at a very, very specific thing. It's, it's really, Hey, you're trying to do something on the web. Yeah. It's the easiest way to do it. And, and I think what's interesting is Conventionally, when you build these kinds of tools, you go for like serious developers and they're like green text on a black screen and it looks like the matrix and they're, you know, and they're, and you have to prove your bona fides and there's a lot of gatekeeping. And this is interesting where we're like, I think everybody benefits from making it easier. And so we have some of the most senior artificial intelligence engineers at Google using Glitch to build examples so people can build on top of their platform their work. And we have here in New York City school kids who are using a curriculum built by mouse.org for their very first line of HTML. Mm. And they are next to each other on the platform on Glitch and they're, you're as likely to see one as the other. And especially because there's a thing where if you're editing code in Glitch um, and you get stuck, we, we catch errors, we put a little you know, light next to it. And it pops up the emoji of the person with their hand raised. And if you click that, the homepage will say, uh, hey, uh, John needs help. Jane, do you wanna go help him? And she clicks the button and says yes, and they're in there editing together. Mm. And so we have kids that are, you know, not even kids, but even adults that are writing their first web page, creating their first line of code, doing the first thing they've ever done that's creation, not just consumption of the web. And when they raise their hand and ask for help, and many times the person on the other side is like an engineer from, you know, Microsoft, from Facebook, from right. Google, from whatever. And sometimes it's the person that made the technology they're using. And when you have that experience on both sides, they're like, there's no other place that we can do this. This yeah. is the promise we were told about us working together and building things. With and it's and you're like, and you're still in the web browser, and you're all in the web browser, right. entirely there. So just the, in terms of accessibility, which is a huge thing, right? Mm -hmm. Which is that you don't need to download three thousand no. different things. You no. don't need to have uh, transit. Fact, you don't need you don't, to have, you don't like, have to do GitHub, anything. You don't have to. Yeah. Yeah. And in really... fact, and in fact, one of the things we think about why we talk to educators so much is you know public schools here in New York, you know kids generally are on a Chromebook. Uh, they're generally sharing the account. They have no email address. Um, and so on Glitch, you don't have, not only do you not have to log in, you don't have to have an account at all. Right. You can build an app live on the web by like, you can go to your library, walk up to a Chromebook, go to glitch.com, click new project and build an app. Hmm. And it's live on the internet and it has its own web address and you can share that with people. And we, we, we don't know who you are. We haven't collected any data on you. Now we want you, you know, we'd love for you to sign up and save your stuff. And like, we're going to have, you know, paid accounts in the new year where you can get more features and capabilities as you'd expect. We want to build a real business. But that idea of like, democratizing the ability to create on the web. I mean, we have people talking to us about in the developing world using simple tablets like iPads, which are expensive but are accessible, in a library and shared context, being able to build a live web page, a live web app. 
you know, that's extraordinary. That's sort of the thing where it gets me back to why I fell in love with the web in the first place. So do you feel like this stuff that you're doing at Glitch is a response to sort of the larger quandaries we face as an industry these days? It is. It is and it isn't. I mean, one of the things I'm mindful of, I talk a lot because in, you know, I have that shared context of like the old web and, and how it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever. I'm very intentional. Glitch is not an attempt to bring back an old web. Right. The good old days were not that good in a lot of ways. They were very exclusionary. There were a lot of problems. Also, the tech wasn't as fun. Like you couldn't do the cool stuff. Yeah. We didn't have smartphones, all, you know, all that stuff. So it's not a throwback. It is about a new web that brings some of that ethos forward. We've just lost the good parts of that. So, so in that way, it is not reactive so much as proactive. On the other hand, we are very, very intentional about looking at what is wrong in the technology industry, you know, especially in the big players in Silicon Valley, and deciding where we can be critical of that and where we can do something a different way. One of the examples is we're not putting you know, surveillance-based ads on the platform. We are introducing a paid set of tools and features. So if you want to have more powerful apps or do more, then you're going to pay for them. I don't think that's that old-fashioned. You know, it's like you offer products and services in exchange for money. Like, that's not that new. It's only recently that we think that's weird online. Right. You know, so that's there. I think even just with our team, so we were very intentional about, as we built the team in Glitch, being very inclusive. And so, you know, majority of our team are uh, women and non-binary people, including in management. We are, you know, very distributed. So half our team's here in New York, half our team's all, you know, all remote. We, we've, we've spent a lot of time thinking about things like, predictable salary and compensation so that people are not worried they're being paid less than their coworkers. These are things that a lot of the big tech companies have gotten wrong and have built really kind of hostile workplaces. And then I think it's impossible to have a, a workplace where the team creating the product is unhealthy and then have a community that's healthy. Right. Right. Like these things are connected. Yeah. So I, I think it's no wonder that at the same time we're seeing that in the glitch community it's much more diverse, much more inclusive. It has a lot more different types of creators than a conventional coding site where, you know, everybody's sort of, like I said, is gatekeeping. And, you know, we haven't announced this yet, but I'll, I'll tell you because it's exciting. Uh, we just passed 4 million apps on Glitch. Wow. 4 million projects people made. And, you know, for context, Apple's App Store has about 2 million. Wow. You know, and, you know, and it's, it's apples and oranges, right. no, no pun intended, yeah. because, you know, there are very simple things and a lot of these apps are composite of each other in English. But the point is you're making the things your own, you know, and I always come back to, you know, like I look at food, you know, as, as we're talking now, we're right near the Thanksgiving holiday and people have meals with their family and they are tradition, the things you grew up with. They are things that everybody loves being in the kitchen together, cooking together and, you remember them. You remember the moments that you sat down with people you love, connected to traditions that you have. You knew where the ingredients came from and what, oh, is this, you know, the, the way that the mom always makes it, you know, you always know those recipes. And we don't have any of those experiences with technology. We don't have home-cooked, locally grown, organic technology. Do you think, though, that, like, there's a, there's just essentially, like, a, a tension there because... Some of what's so great, I think about people, not to say it's great, but some of what people love about some of these platforms that we can like spend a lot of time criticizing mm -hmm. fairly yeah. is that they are global yeah. and that almost anybody can essentially access it pretty easily. We could talk about mm -hmm. what almost anybody means, yeah, but in the yeah. scale of yeah. Oh, yeah, what's they're out there. I mean, my, my family, you know, the village that we're from is in one of the poorest regions of India. It's one of the poorest places in the world. And the Aboriginal tribes who live around our village, a family of four lives on about $800 a year, maybe $1,000 a year. That's today. 
that's you know in current U.S. dollars, and and that's where you know my cousins still live there. Um, I had family visiting from there like this weekend. You know what I mean? And so the the income disparity and the opportunity disparity is as great as you can imagine in the world. And you know my father, who is alive and who is who introduced me to technology, um, was born there, raised there, not born free. He was born a British subject because it was pretty. What part of India is it? The state's called Orissa. It's, it's uh, sort of the the eastern coast okay. of, of India, and. Um, it's not any of the places that, uh, if, if you've had the good luck to go, it's not near the people Taj Mahal and it's right. not near Bangalore, you know, anything like that. You know, so so to be born a British subject, no running water, no electricity, no vaccines. And in fact, when he first came to the US, no way to even send a letter there, let alone a phone call. It wasn't until the 90s that they got a, a satellite phone for the village. Right. And until this century um, when they got running water from a well that we built. So, you know, this is, that's where my family's from and that I still, I lived there as a kid, you know, I was born here, but I would go back and, and live there. So that leap in technology is probably the single, or just in quality of life, is probably the single greatest single generation leap from that to my son living in Manhattan. And I can talk to my family there because they're on WhatsApp. Right. Right. And so I'm part of their lives. I know the price of rice when they take it to the market. I know when a niece or a nephew is born, I know... You know, I just, I know life there in a way that I didn't when I was a kid because we had two lines on the back of a postcard, you know, that the kids were allowed yeah, to write. Yeah. And so that's the, that's the, um, that's the leap in one generation. And I, I see the power of that. I also see a few hundred miles from there, very close to there, the, you know, the Rohingya who have been persecuted in Myanmar and the ethnic cleansing happening there was orchestrated and deliberately planned to take advantage of misinformation on WhatsApp. Right. Right. And tens of thousands of people are at risk of violence and death. And so there's a crystallization in, the, in this, in it, you know, a very small part of the world and in, in terms of distance. In, in the span of just a, a thousand miles, there is like the greatest connection between the most furthest flung people in the world and the greatest threat to a people. And I am not dismissive of the good there because I feel it much more acutely. Mark Zuckerberg doesn't have family there. Yeah. He's never had, you know, that 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 experience. But also he he is he did make money. Facebook did make money from targeted messages in Myanmar. Yeah. They did profit from it. And that that has to be something we respond to. That has to be something we talk about. And it has to be something that we don't treat as inevitable. If it were Palo Alto, that would not happen. Sure. And 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 for me, it's it's very personal and I get very specific because, you know, that is me. You know, it's an accident of geography that it's not me. Right. And or that my dad got on a plane. You know what I mean? And so it it is not abstract in the way that I think. For, it can be for the people who run those things. Exactly. Sure. And, and, and that's not even, and I don't say that, like, I'm not like he's a bad person. He, yeah. you know, he wanted to harm people. It's, this is what happened. And so right. what do we do? And I think in that, I would say it's, it's a true story. It's also kind of a parable in a way that it's something, even though a lot of people out there maybe can't relate to the specificity of mm-hmm. that extremity on some of the, the story, that people can relate to the general concept, yeah. which is just like feeling like a lot of this stuff is super, super positive mm-hmm. and recognizing at the same time that the exact same thing that makes it so positive also in many ways makes it really, really negative and we're really concerned about. Yeah. I guess my question to you is sort of about this concept about 
community and mm-hmm. locally grown software and yeah. the things that we understand is like, can we really ever understand and have a sense of community with software that is literally built to like be for everyone? Like yeah, can yeah. community be for everyone I, and still I don't be think community? You can, I don't you know? think you can build anything for 3 billion people. Yeah. I just don't. And, and, um, part of it is the the work you have to do to generalize it necessarily loses important context, you know, and, and that's so much of what the problems are, whether it's misinformation or uh, harassment or, you know, all, all of the sort of harms we see happening online, a lot of it is contextual collapse and lack of accountability and also frankly, design decisions. Mm. And both in terms of like what is rewarded as well as how the companies make money. You know, I, I think it's very, very hard for a company, any of these companies that are publicly traded, driven by growth, have to deliver. And, and, and one of the things I think is hard for people to understand, and you're kind of putting my CEO hat on, it's not just that Facebook has to grow. It's that a company of that scale, the rate at which they grow has to increase. Right. Which is hard. It, you know, there's this compounded factor. There's this secondary factor, which the market's demand, which is just even more outrageous. It, it's even harder than just, in the old days, it would be like, well, we sold more of the widget this month than we did last month. And so we're headed the right way. But it's that the rate of change has to increase. So it's this sort of second order thing. And, you know, I want to do all the calculus, but the, but the sense here is this. But as you get, as you get larger, your right. cost should go down as a, as it relates to, you know, revenue, your margin should be higher. Theoretically. It should be accelerating. That's what, but, that's what drives the stock price. That's what makes people in theory, then the CEO thinks that's what makes them want to continue working there because the stock that they got an option at X, right. they have some faith is going to be. That's the economics uh, 2X or whatever. But the, the raw, the raw materials you know, the like the oil companies are drilling oil and these companies are drilling our lives, our data, our experiences, our beliefs. And there's only so much oil in the well, right? And then when it gets down to, to you know, dire straits, like what do you do? How do you how do you squeeze more blood from this stone? And the same thing is happening is where we're like, oh, the rate of growth has to increase. And the thing we monetize is people's life experiences and their thoughts right. and their ideas. So we have to wring more out of them. It's a funny thing, you know, if you have, we're both parents, so we can see this, you know, um, Monsters, Inc. is, this, you know, Pixar movie and and uh, the raw materials are children's screams. So right, they, yeah. they have to like make kids have nightmares and then they capture the scream and that's how they get energy. And it uh, it's uh, inadvertently a very good analogy, right? I never thought about it that way before. And yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's like, I don't think they intended it this way, but I'm like, oh yeah, extreme emotional duress is the raw material by that they profit from and that they use to power their their industry right yeah and the interesting thing is the not to spoil the story but if you haven't seen monsters inc in the last 20 years you can you can you can catch up uh go on disney plus and uh and the, the thing about it is the um the conclusion they come to is we can get more power from these kids laughing right and having joy and it's more sustainable and we're not as extractive and we're not harming them and also, we don't feel bad about what we're making. And I was like, that's it. That's the argument I'm making. It's as simple as that, is that I think we can make the web something where we, if we, you know, if we're building these capitalist entities, and I am, we profit from joy and not from emotional duress. Yeah. And that's a, that takes an intentionality, that takes thought and choice, and necessarily, it takes context. 
Because I can only know, like I'm only fully fluent in, oh, I know how that headline's going to read in like American English context. You know what I mean? And like in Spanish, I can understand it, but I don't know the connotation. In Indian English context, I can understand it, but there's some subtext that I might miss and and, and on yeah. and on and on. And that's me as one person. And I'm the leader of this organization. So our organization might have, partially because we are more diverse, more fluencies that we can sort of go to adjacent areas. But I cannot say with confidence, I know what it means in a culture I've never been to, never lived in, What it, when we promote something on our homepage. If we don't have an algorithm recommending things, but if we did, you know, what it would do. And so all that ties together into like, we have to be fluent in the context in which we operate in order to be ethical and responsible. And necessarily, there is nobody who knows the context of 3 billion people. I think part of the problem that's going on, and you, you please tell me if this is, you think this is right though, is that they, on some level, some of these platforms have actually lost control of like what the AI does. And yeah. so like you could go to any one of them, I think, and say, hey, look, promoting all this misinformation, all this hate speech, all this bullying, like all the stuff that algorithms do because it's seen as meaningful because people read it or clicked on it or Drives whatever. Engagement. Yeah, engagement, yeah. air quotes, right? They might all want to not have it do that. But like they've, they're, can they even do that at this point? Like could they even really, if they said, hey, look, we don't want to yeah. promote you know, uh, I mean, you know, controversial content because it makes people feel shitty about themselves, so, even though they click on it. That's a really could good they, question could because they stop. Yes, they could, and and the reason, the only reason, technically, they could, like, yeah, and the only reason I know they could, well, there's a couple reasons, but one of them is most of these founders have an extraordinary amount of control, an unprecedented amount of corporate control, right? I, I think the most extreme is Snapchat, where Evan, the public shareholders basically don't have any voting rights, even yeah. if they buy stock in Snapchat, which is. <laughs> kind of a fundamental undermining of the point of public governance for a publicly traded company. But, uh, you know, that's just theory, I guess, these days. And, you know, and, you know, Zuckerberg at Facebook has an overwhelming amount of control. It basically is almost that level of control. And the instructive example actually is to go back to WhatsApp. So Zuck and his team recognized that messaging was important. They saw WhatsApp as being ascendant at the time when they made their uh, entreaties to, to WhatsApp, I think it was probably 18 people. It was certainly, you know, it wasn't 50 people working at WhatsApp. And from the time when they first approached them to when they closed the deal to acquire WhatsApp was about four days. That's even with like having to nominally go for the board for approval right. and those things. And at the time that the offer was made, that was $18 billion. By the time it closes, $22 billion. Let's call it $20 billion. So when Mark Zuckerberg cares about something, he can deploy $20 billion in four days right. to pursue it. So how many billions have been spent on fighting misinformation, media manipulation, harassment, abuse on these platforms? Right. How many just dollars in reparations to Rohingya have been spent? Right. It's not $20 billion, It's not $1 billion. It's not a tenth of a billion. So no, no, you right. haven't tried. Like and, effort, and, size of effort does not match size of problem. Whether or not they can right. actually get there, you right. know, whatever. Right. But. Well, and, and, and it's not like money fixes all the problems, but boy, it could it could try. And, and, and again, in another instructive example, just talk about PR reputational damage. When the social network movie was coming out and they thought they were going to get some bad press, the day of the movie's release, Mark Zuckerberg went on Oprah with uh, Cory Booker and Chris Christie and said he was donating $100 million to Newark Public Schools. 
as far as I can tell, nothing came of that. They, they gave the money, but nothing yeah. changed in New York public yeah. schools. If anything, I think they got worse. And the emails have leaked because it was they were subpoenaed for something else. But Sheryl Sandberg is very overt about planning that to time against the movie as a, a, a distraction. Like, look at right. how good this guy is. So again, just for PR purposes, they will spend $100 million on nothing. Like, no result. Like, just like put it in, in, a, in a hole in the ground and set it on fire to cover up for the stigma of a film, which is not even that pointed. It's not nearly as critical as it would be now. And so, so the range is between $100 million and $22 billion for when they care about something right. and think it'll impact their business and is worried about the risk. And he has more power to deploy that than any, essentially any executive, any Fortune 500 company, and is one of the most powerful executives in the history of capitalism. And has never even publicly talked about the possibility of any of this. And in fact, I don't think he's ever publicly spoken about the Rohingya or right. Myanmar. He will say, oh, you know, there are whoever, right-wing media figures who feel like they're not being treated fairly by the algorithm. So, so we know about what he cares about. And he has actually spent, he did the listening tour. He had them come by. I don't think any, any Rohingya activists have been, had, had as much time you know, mm. with, with Zuck. So I, I think you can judge a company by its public statements, its actions, the way it treats its people, and where it spends its money most of all. Simple as that. And I know that because I'm a CEO. Yeah. And so when I say we care about inclusion at Glitch, we spend our money on hiring people so that we have a diverse team. And we need to get better. We're nowhere near done. But we are better than every single major tech company in, in you know, our representation. And when we say we want to spend money on enabling open source projects because we think the web is good when open source is able to do it, we spend a lot of our substantial resources as a small company on enabling them to be able to run and create things. I, I think that that's, a, that's not that wild. It's not that wild a conversation to have is to sort of say, do you care about people dying as a result of a platform, You know, your contributions of your platform? It's not solely this, but it had a contributing role. Do you care as much as you care about messaging? Do you care as much as you care about Bitcoin and blockchain? Do you care as much as you care about cloud computing? Do you care one-tenth as much? Do you care 1% as much? And I actually genuinely would settle for 1% as much of Facebook resources going towards writing things in Myanmar as went towards owning WhatsApp. And I don't think they're going to do it. So then what choices do we make as a society? Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love 
and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. We share a, you, a much, much uh, more of a love, but we do share a love for Prince and Prince's music. Oh, yeah. Um, we've recognized Prince here at the Webbies before, mm-hmm. uh, Lifetime Achievement winner. And his speech at the Webbies, which we've talked about a thousand times, but we'll talk about here, was everything you think is true. Yeah. And there's like a million ways. What I love about it is that there's a million ways to think about what that means. <laughs> That's um, what he wanted. Too. Yeah, which is yeah. great. And, you know, I know that having like right after that day and, and years since then, you know, read a, more about it and looked it up and so forth. That was like a meaning. It wasn't, it was a meaningful statement for him. Yeah, like yeah. He, it was a, almost a declaration. He has it on his, it's on his wall, Paisley Park. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it's a yeah. thing. That was in his private quarters in his bedroom. Yeah. And part of what I've taken from it is I think about, he was at the Webby Awards mm-hmm. and I've taken from it is I think about it and it relates, it feels very prescient to me about the internet mm-hmm. and just about like how much of the reality that we experience and the world that we live in is impacted by what we bring to it and like the context that we have or don't Mm -hmm. have. Right. And it just feels like a very important short statement that is a window into what's going on in the world and, but in digital culture today. Yeah. There was a, there was a parallel speech he did a few years prior in 1999 Yahoo back then had a award show in a magazine. Yahoo Internet, Internet Life, Life Awards. Yeah, I remember yeah, exactly. that. Here in New York, they had that. Yeah, it was yeah. like the and answer, New York's answer to, ex- the, to us out on the West Coast. Exactly. Time, yeah. So so he, um, so Prince got a, a Yahoo Internet Life Award and he went and he, and he said, he had a sort of great, you know, classically cryptic Prince speech. And he said, you know, I know you've all seen The Matrix. It's okay to get on the computer, but don't let the computer get on you, Right. So he was pro-technology, but pro-ownership and control. And, and, you know, the last half of his career, sort of post, you know, MTV and the spotlight and, and the superstardom was about, one, educating everyone, but especially artists, creators, about ownership and control and the ways that artists, but especially black artists, had been exploited. And, you know, this was sort of framed up as he was fighting his record company. But what he was doing from a business standpoint was educating an entire generation of creators about intellectual property and the challenges and opportunities that came with the digital, you know, revolution and the internet and about a historical context for it. And he really began, you know, I, I would say in between that Yahoo Internet Life Award and when he was at the Webby's was his exploration of that world. And, um, you know, for context, people might not have. Prince had a website in um, ninety six that he launched and, and and he had sort of been dabbling in 95 but even before that 94 95 he would come into aol chat rooms with fans and talk about what he was working on yeah. and, and tell us about award shows he was going to go on all that kind of stuff and it was you know nowadays in social media people do it all the time this was 25 years ago and he was still a huge star he had number one hits and stuff then like he was not you know and people's a legacy ac- act. people's access to Interaction with people, the celebrities was, was zero. Just, is zero. So, yeah. like, to actually, it's there were th- you know yeah. three networks and and you know a couple cable channels yeah. and two music magazines. And this was you were talking to one of the biggest stars in the world. You know, like Michael Jackson was not doing that. Madonna was not doing that. Yeah. And so, it's a, it was mind bending, and, and it felt surreal, and it felt like the future. You know, it felt like oh, this is clearly where everything is going to head. And I think he just sort of saw that coming. And then and then he sort of dabbled. So he had, uh, I, I think, his first 
his first website, you know, that launched in 96, I think went up within a couple of months of when Amazon launched, you know, and he had, you could buy music and you could, you know, buy products and all that kind of stuff. So like, you know, he had people like manually doing order delivery and stuff. And there was a whole page explaining like how you put a credit card in and why it was safe. And, right. you know, it was, yeah, it's just course. like, it's so early web and it, and, it, and it's really extraordinary. And then, and then immediately, I mean, the following year he did a crowdfunding campaign online. So when I get a hundred thousand orders for this album, I'm going to press it up. So like, you know, Kickstarter didn't launch until 04, 05. I mean, it's 15 years prior, almost yeah. 20 years prior. So so that sense of, and it's not just your early, it's that you understand what these tools can do and how they disintermediate the the infrastructure that had been exploitative. Yeah. That had, you know, you know, and he- And he, also really ties into what he was doing with the stuff going on with his label. Yes. And yeah. Renouncing the label right. and his own, you know, yeah. renouncing his name and all that was yeah. all very tied into this. It was very connected. And yeah. I think, and I think now it's been revealed to be pretty much dead on, you yeah. know? And also- I mean, he, it was the new power generation, right? right. I mean, literally yeah. Yeah. the yeah. new power generation. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't like- not, no, it was very literal. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And that's funny. It's like, he had all these, you know, metaphors of the, like, you know, the purple paisley, you know, unicorn rainbow, whatever things. And then this was like, you know, own your things digitally. I mean, yeah. it's just like very, very literal. Yeah. And, um, and then, and then when the platforms came, he would experiment with each well enough to understand it. So when Napster, he was the first major label artist to put a song out on Napster. And he, you know, I think the the narrative that got sort of assigned to him later in his life was he was the guy taking stuff down on YouTube. Yeah. But he was among the first to put things on iTunes, on Spotify, on YouTube, just to understand, on SoundCloud. I mean, he was everywhere. You know, I was told by people in, you know, at Paisley Park at his studio that he would, he would do um, late night rehearsals and, and live stream them. And he would see fans in the sort of chat underneath the stream. And somebody would be like, oh, you know, I don't like this song or whatever. He'd be like, yeah, I know that fan doesn't like that. Like he knew the names, the handles of the fans yeah. because he'd been online for so many decades, the same way as we all know each other. If you've been in a, you know, whatever, a, a certain web community or whatever for 10, 20 years, you get to know the usual names. He did too. So, you know, they were like, of course he knew who each of you were if you'd been around that long because he knows the names. Yeah. And so he would talk to us. So I would, I, you know, actually very late in his life, he'd done a, a Bob Marley cover and his last tour that I just thought was great. And he did a sort of medley with his own song. And it's like, why don't you release that? And he's like, well, I'd have to get permission from the estate and we haven't done all that yet. I'm still on tour. And he's just replying back to me on Twitter, you know? And I'm like, oh, but it's compulsory licensing. You don't have to really get permission. And he's like, all caps, like this is one of the most heinous things that's ever been perpetrated on artists. Like he just goes he's off. He's mad about that. Yeah, that exactly. That. Yeah, like yeah, he yeah, was yeah. real lit up. And it was so right. great because it was, I was like, you're not still pretending this is like your social media manager, are you? Like right, this, yeah. this is the guy because like his 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 Twitter guy was not like I have strong feelings about compulsory licensing, <laughs> you know? Like it was very clearly him, and I think that sense of deep fluency in an esoteric area of intellectual property law is not the thing you think of with the guy who like had his ass out at the MTV Awards and right. and is you know and, and is singing about all these things that like scandalized politicians in the '80s, but. It's the same dude, and I think he came along in the same journey as so much of us did, which is like, what is the web for? Well, how can I use it to empower myself? How can I use it to create? And I think that Webby moment was really powerful too because, you know, he didn't do – by that point, he wasn't going to, honestly, the Grammys, the American no, Music yeah. Awards. Like he, he was, was – he yeah. was like, I don't need that. I've been – well, literally what he said in song is like, you know, uh, basically I've been to the mountaintop, but like there's a mountain that's mighty high but all the glitters is in gold. And so he had sort of not had an interest in that kind of affirmation. I think he saw this as a legitimizer 
in an area he cared deeply about. Yeah. And he was very proud of that. And I think that's a, like, he was low key about it. Like he was still like man, maintaining the mystique. And, and that's actually, you know, there's so many, obviously it's sad that we lost him, but I think one of the tragedies is I think the last year of his life was the first time he started to really disassemble the mystique. You know, he had started to do a tour that was very open, him talking literally about his family and his past girlfriends and things. He had always had this sort of metaphorical, you know, distance of like, well, that's a song about a person and she knows who she is, you know, and he's like, I wrote this song for this woman and, you know, I miss her, you know, like it was very, very different. And him talking about his father and his kind of like love, hate rivalry with his father as a musician and all this kind of stuff. And part of that was his changing views on technology where... I think he had been, well, you know, he'd said in, in a 2010 or 2011 interview, the internet is over. And of course, you know, because media works the way right. it works, that's, everybody sort of ran yeah. with it. And they were right. like, I guess that's why he st- took his stuff off of YouTube. And what he meant was, you're not going to discover new artists that have not been approved by the major streaming platforms or music platforms, iTunes or Spotify or whatever. And he was right. Yeah. Right. Like it had been recaptured by the major labels. And part of the context that people, I think, ignore there is like, this was at the moment when Taylor Swift is having her first struggles with Spotify and she is on her Tumblr asking Tim Cook to change things on Apple Music and he's watching all of that and responding to like, you don't own this, you're not going to own this. And now we've seen that full flower. Right. I mean, literally that exact story is it, still- Exactly. Yeah. Where, where, you know, Taylor Swift is literally having to battle about what song she's going to play of her own that she wrote herself. Right. On, on at the American Music Awards. At the American Music Awards. Ironically. Right, is, exactly. Yeah, where he uh, came and, you know, renounced his, his name as Prince. Ex- exactly. Right? Yeah. That's exactly right. So yeah. so I think there's this very full circle thing where I, I think, frankly, he saw the limits of like his elliptical, poetic way of talking about it had sort of had limits because people's attention spans are too short. But they weren't going to dive into like some like you know some Wikipedia page about like what did he mean and then let me get twenty minutes into some like blues jam and he's explaining the metaphor you know and instead he's like let me just tell you straight out and and you know some of that is in his memoir that's published some of that is in in the music and in the work Uh, but I I don't think he got to complete that work and so I think that act of translation is really powerful because it was clear I mean if you put the pieces together it was clear what he was saying he was right and and I think there's something really powerful about also the web recognizing his role in legitimizing. And it's hard for people to believe this now because the web is so ubiquitous, but him, you know, Prince or artists of that caliber taking to the web in the nineties, in the early nineties, mid nineties and staying with it for decades to evolve it, gave it a credibility it wouldn't have otherwise had. The real feel was that, oh, the web is a toy and these real advanced high-tech multimedia platforms are what's going to win, and the proprietary platforms will win. And the the fact that a real credible artist, and there are, you know, David Bowie's in that camp, and yeah. you know, there were others. The fact that these artists could see the web for what it was and the openness to having the value that it did. I mean, they really validated it, right? Yeah. I mean, for, for like regular people out there who weren't. Right. You know, young, like who just had, weren't like in college. It was a was reason like to buy a modem. Yeah. It was a reason to get connected. It was a reason yeah. to buy a computer. I mean, people forget like when that, that blue iMac, the first like translucent iMac came out. One of the things they designed for was people's first computer, not just first on the internet or whatever, right? right? Cause like they didn't have a computer at home. And so the idea of like, you know, these artists, uh, you would get online so that you could listen to David Bowie, so you could listen to Prince was like, you know, enough enticement. Whereas just like, come check out my, my personal webpage might not be. But then people also recognize, well, if those are people here who are 
among the great creators in cultural history, then clearly creative people can be here and we can make things. Yeah. So they were implicitly showing by their presence that the web is a thing we make, not just a thing we consume. I think there are millions of creators out there around the world on the web who intuitively know they need a thing that they own, that they control. They, they may not understand the full context of what Taylor Swift's battle is, but they're like, something's not right there. This, this woman, when she was a girl, wrote these songs herself and now she can't sing them. Yeah. Something's amiss. And they see, I know I can share photos without having to feel creeped out about what's going to happen to them, where they're going to go. Right. I, I know that I can send messages to somebody and I shouldn't have to worry about there being misinformation, you know, intermingled with it. So they, they can intuit that there's another way that's possible, but they haven't been shown it. And it's not going to come from a company selling it to them. It's got to be the person in their community, the artist, the educator, the activist, the, the you know, whoever it is, that, that person in their community is going to say, I made this thing and it solves a need. It tells us where we can cross the street safely. It tells us, you know, what, what laws are passing and whatever. It's the menu at the cafeteria. And that's enough for people to sort of say, oh, this feels different and they can intuit that. And I think, you know, what I try to do, what we try to do at Glitch, what I think so many of us who still are optimistic about the web try to do is make it possible for that other web to exist because the web we have today is not going to go away. The apps yeah. we have today are not going to go away, but we have to remember there are other things that are possible. Neil Dash, thank you for joining us on the Webby Podcast. I'm happy to. Thank you so much to Neil for coming into the studio and speaking with us. Neil has a great podcast called Function, where he explores many of the issues we discussed today. And if you are interested in learning more about Glitch, visit glitch.com. If you like the Webby Podcast and want to support it, take a couple of seconds and give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you really like it and want to go to the extra mile, leave us a review. For more information about the Webby Awards, visit webbyawards.com, that's webbyawards.com, or on social platforms at The Webby Awards. As always, you can reach me on social at dmdlikes. Our producer is Terrence Brosnan, our editorial lead is Jordana Jarrett. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is in Australia. I'm your host, David Michelle Davies, and this is The Webby Podcast. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.